The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray with me. Almighty God, you are the king of all the creation. King of the spiritual realm and of the physical realm, you are the Lord, the ruler. And we want to be a people who understand that and acknowledge it and revel in it. But we here, myself, we are prone to wander. Our hearts are prone to to be distracted and to, to deviate from you and forget about you. That's more wrong than we realize. It's worse than we realize. It feels so common to us that we don't understand the magnitude of that offense. And yet you are still gracious towards us. And I pray that in your grace this morning, what you would do in us here is that you would draw us back. You would draw our minds and our hearts back to you. Start with me, Lord. Give me a mind set on you. My brothers and sisters here, Father, give them minds set on you, fixed on you, attached to you. For those here, Lord, who don't know You, would You open their eyes and give them a a, a new, a a large, a grand, a, a capturing vision of You. Draw them to You. Father, I pray that You would cause Your Spirit to run through us here this morning, to be in this room and and even dwelling within us. Lord, we know that He lives in each believer, but would He, would he rise up and, and rattle our cages a little bit and get our attention and change us? Commission Him to do that, I pray. You are about building a people. You've created a people. You are about increasing it and growing it and extending it down through the ages and extending it in size and, and growing its its depth of appreciation of You and the depth of its influence on this Your creation. You're about this people. You're about growing us in righteousness. And I pray that You would do that. Father, towards that end, use Your Scripture this morning under the power of Your Spirit. Open our eyes to it. Give me words to speak that are accurate and that are helpful. Give us hearts and minds to listen and hear and apply. And I pray that in all of it, Christ will be lifted up and exalted. In His name I pray. Amen. This morning we turn our attention to Deuteronomy chapter 25. And as we finish this chapter this morning, it's worth noting, briefly, where we are in the flow of the book as a whole. Because this morning we are are approaching the beginning of the end of a major section of of Deuteronomy. For a number of chapters, we've been looking at a a wide assortment of, of commandments and statutes and rules and regulations that God gave as civil law to His Old Covenant people, nation of Israel, that was organized as a civil nation. He gave them the civil law, which was really an unpacking of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, And we've been looking at that for chapter after chapter after chapter. And that long section is coming to an end. If you look at your Bible, you'll realize that next week, chapter 26, you might have a heading there that says offerings of first fruits and tithes. It's about worship and offerings to God, which is a mirror of chapter 12. It's the second bookend that kind of captures all in the middle, all these rules and regulations. So we're we're drawing close to the end. 
And this morning, it's going to show a little bit in that a couple of things we look at are, are sort of summary sort of statements. I'm going to be trying to, to in them, capture a little bit of what this section has been about. Just a little bit of summary here this morning. So with that, let me read today's passage. It's the rest of chapter 25. And then I'm going to move back through it and, and say a few things about its content because there are some things in here that we have to say some things about. And then we'll try to pull it all together with a couple of overarching observations. So I'm going to begin reading in Deuteronomy 25, verse 5, through the end of the chapter. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Can you turn down the ringing, please? When men fight with one another and the wife of the one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eyes shall have no pity. You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Chapter 25, the word of the Lord. The first and longest section of the passage touches on the subject of leveret marriage, and that's the one I need to say the most about because it is most unusual for us today. Leveret marriage, the name comes from actually a Latin word. It means brother-in-law. So it's talking about brother-in-law marriage is clearly odd to us. And and undoubtedly, we today, we read this, and and depending on your gender, your, your first reaction is likely something like, yuck. Sleep with my brother-in-law? Sleep with my sister-in-law? That's because our, our culture, the first thing that we think about in our culture, and this sort of thing, is sex. That if influenced our culture so deeply, that's the first thing that comes to our mind. But the fact of the matter is that in ancient times, lots of cultures did this. And had no problem with that point that for us is like, skip right over that. We can read the literature of, of all kinds of other peoples, and we see it represented there. You can read the Bible, Genesis 38, centuries before this point. And Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are, are, are practicing this just as a matter of course. With the book of Ruth, we see it there as a matter of course. And in fact, the, the details in Ruth are different, and that tells us something, that, that there's a bigger picture to leveret marriage that we don't know everything about. It's, it's similar there in Ruth, but it's a little bit different. There's, there's more to the story. It was, it was a widely done practice that had lots of ins and outs to it. 
But it was widely done. And primarily, it was done for the sake of what we see repeated in this text in verses 6 and 7 and 9. To keep a man's name and his family line alive. Cultures have always found that important. We find that important. It's, it's not, and it's not exactly that it's, that it's important in a material, tangible way. I mean, if you think about it just materially, tan- tangibly, what should I care about my great, great, great grandson? I'm never going to meet him. We're never going to interact, so why should I even care? But I care. You all care. You want there to be great, great, great grandchildren. It's not immaterial to you, even today, but especially back then, even more so back then. The idea of of a lineage, of building a family, of building a house and having it spread was very important, even more so in ancient Israel because of the added importance of the Old Covenant. That covenant was very physical in nature. It was, it was a physical covenant that had a physical people that were going to be in a physical place and God was going to actually dwell there. Of course, God dwells everywhere. But He was going to uniquely dwell with His people in this place, this land. And He was going to give them blessings, especially by physical blessings. And so, this promised place for this people was important, and it was divvied up amongst all the twelve tribes. It was going to be divided, every tribe with its place, and every clan and every tribe with its place, and every family of every clan of every tribe with its place. There, in the presence of God, with God's blessings attached to that place. Unless somebody died without an heir. And then the widow's place in that place was tenuous. That's the issue that in Israel was particularly attached to levirate marriage. God didn't didn't teach it. He He didn't start it here, but he's regulating levirate marriage in Israel in a particular circumstance. This is not for all brothers in laws and not for all widows. Verse five, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies, And has no son. That's the particular circumstance. Here's what you do. The brothers are dwelling together. They're they're living in common. Probably had different houses. But the idea would be here that a father left land to his sons. And they together thought, you know, it would be a good and pleasant thing for brothers to dwell together in unity. Let's live here. Share this. Work it in common. We'll own the plow together. We'll own the oxen together. We'll own the land together, which works just fine until one of them dies without a son. The regulation then in that case is that she would not marry outside of the family. That would create some financial complications. But instead, her brother-in-law will marry her and produce an heir for her who will take the name of the brother. You can see how this is going to work out just fine. But he doesn't want to do it. And so, we can't even imagine this, but she goes to court to require him to sleep with her and give her a son. He doesn't want to do it. The elders sitting in the gate publicly are pressuring him, do this. He doesn't want to do it. And so, she responds by taking off his sandal. A sign of removing from him privilege because he has removed his responsibility. And spitting in his face, clearly humiliating. And naming his house, the house of one who had a sandal. The house of one who shirks his responsibility. You dirtbag. <laughs> Publicly. Why would he do that? Well, think about it. Two men together own, let's say, a hundred acres. One dies with no heir. That's a 50-acre profit. Right there to be had. Now, yes, there were some odd inheritance laws, and you can read about them in other places in the Bible, that this happened and that happened and whatnot, but the simplest, straightforward thing would be for her to conclude, I need to marry somebody, go marry him, and leave all 100 acres of this guy. And that's what the brother-in-law is hoping for. You, not just you dirtbag, you greedy dirtbag. This is about money. You're going to cut me off 
from my access to the promised land of God, the place that God said He would dwell with my people and He would be here to bless me, you're going to cut me off from that for money? And you're going to erase my husband's name and treat him as if he never existed, wipe him out of Israel for money? Unbelievable. In front of all these people. Yep, that's what I'm going to do. Amazing. Levert marriage is about greed or, positively speaking, about sacrifice. Here it is, right here for me to take, but I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to work this land myself for 20 years in your name until he grows up. 15 years maybe, until he grows up. I'm going to work it. I'm going to take upon myself that responsibility to work this land and keep it going. And then I'm going to give it to you. Though I could take it myself. Notice there's no penalty. The only penalty is shame. He can walk away from the gate with 100 acres. Shamed, but he can get it. God wants him to give it sacrificially. That's what levert marriage is, is getting at. And 11 and 12 connect to that, follow right on the heels, because of the idea, the connection with the, the lineage. Two guys fighting, a wife intervenes. This is not incidental contact. It's, it's a deliberate attempt to cause hurt or injury of, of a sort that would cause this guy to relent and, and leave the fight. Which is standard fare for any self-defense course, right? So what's the problem? Well, in Israel, what the problem is, is not only the, the lineage thing like we've already talked about, but additionally, if you were to go back to chapter 23, verse 1, if she were to severely hurt him, she actually threatens his presence in the assembly of the Lord. Those are serious things, spiritually speaking. But she disregards that in, in an act of not even self-defense, of husband defense. Now, obviously, the penalty is very severe. Meant to be a deterrent so that no one would do that. You can avoid getting in that sort of a situation. And you probably would, knowing the penalty. 13 to 16 then changed topics back to an economic situation, which at start seems like lots of other passages that we've seen so far in this book. God's commanding fair and full measure. Fair and full weight. Literally, full and just or full and righteous, as your footnote might say. God wants righteousness among His people. And anything else, dishonesty for financial gain is an abomination. There's the, the topic again. Dishonesty for financial gain. It's an abomination. And then finally, God reminds His people of Amalek, a group that they encountered on the way out of Egypt. They, they fought a few battles here and there, but what God specifically puts His finger on, how they attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, vulnerable, weak, and they cut off the tail. You, can, you picture a million people traveling. They stretch out. And who's in the back? The weak ones. The ones who are slower. The young. Maybe those who are tending to the young. They're behind. And Amalek let the main body go by and then attack the weak ones. God says, I have a problem with that. I'm going to blot them out. So I'm going to bring you in. I'm going to establish you here. And when I do that, blot them out. God's judgment. Falling on those who attack His weak and vulnerable people and do not fear Him. Verse 18. That's the text. Again, uh, miscellaneous laws. A little bit over here, a little bit over there. What's the common theme working through it? Well, let me try to catch it in this one sentence, and then I'll break it in half. Here's my summary for this morning. Fear God and walk in righteous, loving service to others. My summary for this passage. Fear God and walk in righteous, loving service to others. That's this passage, frankly, that is a lot of the book of Deuteronomy. A lot of this connects to what we've already seen before. This morning I'm going to break that in half and, and make two observations. So let me, let me start with kind of the back end of that. 
We are to consider the needs or rights. Consider the needs or the rights of others before those of yourself. Consider the needs of others before those of yourself. This shows up in all four of the subdivisions in the text. What's the brother-in-law thinking about? What is he supposed to be thinking about? What he's thinking about is me, my bottom line. What can profit me? But what he's supposed to be thinking about is the need of this vulnerable widow and his deceased brother's name. The security of his sister-in-law. It's not on his mind, though. The dishonest businessman. What he's supposed to be thinking? He's supposed to be thinking about justice, having a righteous measure. But what is he thinking about again? His bottom line. But when in self-defense, is thinking about defending me and mine, not what might happen to this other man if I harmed him severely. And again, Amalek, same thing. Israel wasn't seeking to wipe out Amalek. It's just passing by. And they swoop in and say, hey, look, here's a vulnerable people. Let's attack them. It's the same thing again and again. And most of the time, in these situations and really throughout the whole book, most of the time, the, the others whose needs we are supposed to consider are weak and vulnerable, open to exploitation. Those are the kind of people that God constantly instructs us to watch out for. The widow, the unsuspecting business partner, the ones trailing behind rarely does God say something like, now be sure that you don't rip off Donald Trump. Not that he's fair game for injustice. It's just that people like him and their lawyers do a pretty good job of taking care of themselves. It's other people who find it difficult to take care of themselves. Those are the people that God says to us, pay attention to, consider, Think about, watch out for their needs and their rights. I, I think, I mean, I've, I, I certainly feel like, and I think that, that as you're listening to this, this should sound familiar. Over and over again, we've heard this in Deuteronomy. It's come up again. God is seeking to press this into His people. He wants a people of a certain sort not just a numerical people, not just, not just a lot of people, once people of a certain sort, a people who are righteous, a people who have an attitude, a concern for others, who see other people as an opportunity to serve rather than tools to be used. It's the second table of the law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So I'm just saying the same thing again. Because God is saying the same thing again. I'm using a little different words this time. I'm using the words that that should kind of ring a bell of Philippians 2. When I say something like, consider the needs of others before those of yourself, you should have Philippians 2. If you're a Christian, you know the Bible a little bit. Philippians 2 should run through your mind. Count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Philippians 2, second table of the law, Deuteronomy. It's a consistent note. So I don't want to be too complicated with this. Do you consider the needs and rights of others before those of yourself? It's not a suggested way to live. It's a commandment. Consistently. And it's for our good. Can you imagine for a second what it would be like to live in a world or to to live in a church or to live in a family in which people actually were like this? To be married to someone who actually did consider your needs before their own. The Bible says so, but few of our marriages are actually like that. To, to live in a church family, to rub shoulders with people in a church family who actually did 
consider the needs of others before their own. Can you imagine that? You almost have to imagine it. So, so I start doing that. I start imagining a world or a church or a family and trying to think, okay, how does this apply? What might this look like? And maybe some of the details here help you. They kind of poke me a little bit. Maybe they poke you. The levirate marriage thing, obviously, the details of this, we're, we're not doing that today. The importance of being having a, a little piece of a land is not reality for us today. But maybe it pokes you a little bit to, to think, I have... The standing, I have the opportunity and therefore the responsibility. I have the opportunity to bless someone, but I'm not doing it. I have $38 extra every month. And I saw the video this morning. And the table, I'm going to walk by it, but the point is I'm going to walk right by it. You have a chance there. And I don't mean to, I'm very careful, I don't want to manipulate every single person that's stopping at that table because some of us shouldn't. But some of us should. You have the opportunity. God's poking you with the responsibility. Don't walk by. Stop. You have the opportunity to connect a vulnerable person to the blessings of covenant with God. Should you? Is that you? Maybe the, the two kinds of measures convicts you of some double standard that you operate under. There are a lot of people, it grieves me to say, there are a lot of people, and interestingly what Charlie commented on before he prayed this morning, the idea of forgiveness, this is rampant. Christians who talk about forgiveness and expect forgiveness for themselves quickly and hold grudges with others forever. That's a double standard. That's wrong. Maybe He pokes you with that. Maybe the Lord wants to poke you about dishonesty in your workplace. Or dishonesty in general. Verse 16 actually indicts all who act dishonestly. So, I have to ask you, and I have to be vague here because I don't know it, it's hidden. Are you hiding something? Are you hiding something from your wife? From your parents? I don't know, I have any idea what it is. Maybe it's some significant serious sin and you hide it partly out of fear of what might happen. Uh, let, me, let me be really clear. When you bring sin into the light, that's where sin dies. Sin lives and breeds and eats you in the dark, but it dies in the light. When you bring it out into the light, it can be faced and dealt with. And Christ says He has wide open arms of grace and forgiveness for those who come to Him with their sin. Are you hiding something? Bring it out. I don't know. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. But beyond the particular details here, I mean, I I look at these passages and I think about some of the, the particular details, but really for me, as I read this, to be honest, a lot of it sounds like a lot of what we've already seen. And the thing that strikes me the most is the the big picture. God is concerned that we be a people, that I be a person, that you be a person who lives loving others. Especially other believers, but not only other believers. This is righteousness in God's eyes that we be a people who think you before me. What do you need? How can I help you? How can I bless you? How can I give to you? How can I sacrifice? Rather than, as in every one of these situations, the person's thinking, defend myself, advance my own cause, enhance my own bottom line at your expense. 
That's, that's the main contrast throughout so much of this book. He wants a people who live thinking, love others. The second table of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. That sort of posture is what we're supposed to look like. But, but I have to be honest here. I, the most consistent, and I do not mean to say constant, but the most consistent vibe, I know it's a generic word, feeling, impression, the most consistent vibe that I get from our church body is not this. I don't say constant because there are, there are many people and I, I could list off, I won't because I don't want to bring things out like that in the public and, and embarrass people, but there are, I could list off names of people who have done things, who have displayed this very clearly, who have hearts to display this. I don't mean constant or total, but most consistently, the vibe that I get from our body is one of demanding our own rights. Which is exactly the opposite of what God means for His people to be. I don't know how much of this vibe is colored by the particular position that I have in that I'm always dealing with people in some sort of conflict, with some sort of issue. It can be depressing that I'm dealing with that constantly. Maybe And maybe my view is colored. Maybe my view is colored, but maybe it isn't. best thing for you to do is ask about yourself and your own circle of influence. Do you consider the needs and rights of others before yourself? Do you have a perspective? And if you have this perspective, it it cuts the root of of conflict because you you don't fight. We, We have a clash. How can I serve you? We disagree about something. How can I help? Rather than, here's what I want. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not because you want something and you don't get it? Well, if what I want is what would serve and bless you, we're not going to have a fight. Obviously, there are things worth fighting about. Most of the time, we don't fight about them. Do you consider the needs and rights of others before those of yourself? It's, as I said, it's the second table of the law reiterated by Jesus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And to get to that point, to get there, we actually first must be drawn to someone else in the heart. That's the second observation. Here's the second point. Fear God and keep His commandments of love towards your neighbor. We're supposed to keep His commandments of love. How we get there? Fear God. I'm going to lean on that part of that. Fear God. Remember, in the Bible, the fear of the Lord is not intended to make us cringe or to make us think about like terror or or some sort of ugly God who's a mean ogre. That's not what it's, it's about. To fear God is to revere Him. To in your mind and heart be fixed on Him. To be drawn to Him. Like, like a, a great big compass. Think of a, a compass with an arm drawn to the North Pole. We might say that it fears the North Pole. It's not cringing away from it. It's, it's drawn to it. This, this pole captures you. To count Him as supremely significant. It's heart devotion to Him. It's, it's actually very similar to love. We don't think of those two words the same, but they are about very similar concepts. To be drawn to and fixed on. To have this thing hold your attention. The opposite of fearing God is not being comfortable with Him. 
It's ignoring him or overlooking him, forgetting about him. And in our minds, even before we come to this text, we should already associate the heart attitude of the fear of the Lord with the outflowing of obedience to him. What's the first table of the law about? Commandments 1 to 4. You shall love, fear, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. And the second table, and you shall love your neighbors yourself. Which comes first? This one comes first. So we should just see that pattern, or we could listen to God's words, God's own words in Deuteronomy 5.29, right after he gives the Ten Commandments. Oh, that my people had such an attitude to fear me and keep my commandments. God links the two together. We should already have that in our minds before we come to the text. But then we come to the text and see what was Amalek's problem. Well, what he did, verse 18, he attacked them on the way, the faint and weary, and cut off their tail. End of the verse. Why? He did not fear God. The fear of God would have shown itself. And Amalek would have said, those are the Lord's people. I'm not touching that. Not because of them, but because of the Lord. I know him, and I know what he's about, and I know what his attitude towards us will be, and I will respond accordingly. I will not touch them. That would have been the fear of the Lord. It was not present in Amalek. He did not fear the Lord. That was his root of, the, root of his problem. Same thing with the dishonest businessman. Could there be any businessman, any businesswoman in Israel who had not heard the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal, or the Ninth Commandment, you shall not bear false witness, or the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet? Impossible for them to not know the Eighth, Ninth, and Tenth Commandments. They just don't care. Well, sure, that's God's commandments. So, this would be profitable to me. That is clearly not the fear of the Lord. And the lack of the fear of the Lord is what drives the greed and the dishonesty. Same thing with the the brother-in-law coveting the financial gain of the estate. So, follow this. This is very important. We need to understand something. We need to understand how we work so that we then know what to do. You and I, we have a difficulty, a significant difficulty, loving our neighbor as ourselves. But the main problem behind the lack of love for your neighbor is not that you don't love your neighbor. The main problem behind that is that you don't love the Lord. Don't fear God. That's the main problem. We need to be really clear on that. Because that means that we don't grow in love of neighbor by trying to love our neighbor more. We grow in love of neighbor... By growing in the fear of the Lord. That connection is very important. And it shows us what we're to do and it shows us what God will do. Our main problem as people, constantly, across the board in everything, our main problem as people is that God rests very light on us. At best, we are like chicken on a barbecue. Baste it with a little bit of barbecue sauce three minutes before you take it off. It looks all nice and good and juicy and red, and you taste that sauce, mmm, it's nice, but you cut into it. What's the middle of that breast like? Plain old white chicken. Because it rests right on the surface and it looks good, but it has not gotten into the meat. We must be people marinated for days. You know what happens when you cut into a piece of chicken that's been marinated for days? It's brown. 
You've done this. It's brown all the way through. Why? Because the stuff has soaked in and has run through and colored everything. So every piece of that, not just the surface, every piece of it down deep inside, when you poke it, when you cut into it, when you rip its insides out, what you will find there is the flavor. We are not like that as people. God rests very light on us. We barely hold to the first table of the law, which is why we cannot hold to the second table of the law. Which lays out what God's work for us must be if He is going to be gracious to us. And He is. And so He does something. In the passage, what is He doing? I'm going to use two words here. I've used them before. I, I use these words because I like them. I'm not original, but I like the words wooing and warning. I'm a preacher, so I have to use alliteration. But wooing and warning. That's what God does to grow in us fear of Him. And it's right here in the passage, at verse 15. There's wooing there, isn't there? Don't rip people off. So that, what does it say? That your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. I am giving you a land. A little further down. I'm going to give you rest in that land. It is a land of milk and honey, full of abundance. And you will live there with me, dwelling in this place on into ages. And you'll gain far more from that than you will by ripping off this guy with your unjust measure. That's wooing. That's, that's luring. Here's where your benefit lies. Walk this path with me. And if you don't, what comes of those who are abominations in God's eyes? We've seen that word enough times in this book. What comes of the one who does not fear the Lord, Amalek? There's a warning in that, is there not? Blotted out. Wooing and warning. That's in the law. It's in spades in the gospel. Is there not wooing and warning in the gospel? I mean, the wooing ramps up several levels, does it not? What does he entice you with in the gospel? What does he talk to you about? What's, what's been done for you in the gospel? There are some material blessings, to be sure. He's going to give you life. He's going to meet your needs here in this life. He's going to take you to a place one day where all sin has been wiped away. That's, that's material blessing there, but far more than that, He has done something amazing. I mean, He's done something amazing. Do you know what amazing thing He has done? Our problem here is that because God rests so lightly on us, we don't really know this to be amazing. You know what I'm going to say. You know what the right answer is, but it doesn't amaze you. Sometimes it does. But... Here's this thing that should amaze us and we come back to God and the world and entertainment and our and God and then I'm angry at this other God and it draws us every now and then but we spend a whole lot of time prone to wander. Not amazed, not captured, not drawn. May God have mercy on us. He has done something amazing for you. Which one of us has not acted dishonestly and not become an abomination in His eyes? Why is it an abomination? Because He above all things is the God of truth. Which one of us has not said, who cares about that? I would rather enhance this thing, this opportunity. I don't care. Which one of us has not said that? All of us have. 
it is amazing to think about an almighty, all-knowing God who does not crush that immediately, but instead says, I will graciously deal with that, forgive it, and change you. That should not be. It should not be. But it is. It is amazing that He forgives you. It should not be. It is amazing that He loves you. It shouldn't be. You are most unlovely and most loved. To see this, to think on this, to feed on this, will draw you to Him so that perhaps tomorrow a little more consistently you'll be drawn, fixed on fearing the Lord. There is factual content there that should feed your mind and that by the Spirit of God He can take and actually change you with. So we are in need of His grace to actually come and open our eyes and effectively woo us and warn us of the loss that comes from stiff-arming Him. There is loss that comes from stiff-arming Him. There are some who think they are Christians. There are some here you think you are a Christian and you aren't. I don't know who that is. I don't even know everybody here. Examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith. Is your heart soft towards Him? As I'm talking here, do you wish for, do you want what I'm talking about? Or do you just want to go home? It's 11.55, almost 12. When will He be done? If that's what's going on in your mind, that's not a good sign. I don't claim to be a capturing speaker, but I do think that where the Word of God is talked about and the Spirit of God is at work, people should be concerned for what it says. And if you're more concerned about something out there, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. But for those of us who are Christians, who are in the faith, there still is loss for stiff-arming Him. Loss here in this life. We've talked about this a bunch of times too. There is a path of blessing and there is a path of cursing. Along the path of blessing, the path of obedience, you will walk in and experience, not earn, walk in and experience His bounty. Sometimes material, spiritual especially. To not walk in that path is to walk in sorrow and loss. Saved, but as through fire. Who wants that? And there is loss for eternity. Let me be very careful here. Because heaven, in the presence of God, is not a place of want. Of wishing for, oh, but I don't. A sense of sorrowful loss. That's, that's not what the, is going on in heaven. But there is difference in heaven. The Bible talks about different rewards. The Bible talks about, Jesus Himself talks about some ruling over this number of cities and some over that. I don't understand it all, but I know there's something to it. And we should run after Him and hope for more of His change in our lives that whatever there is to experience from Him, we don't set it aside now, trading some heritage for a pot of stew. We are commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are commanded to love them before ourselves, to prefer them. And that only comes 
about in us as we grow in our fear, our love, our fixation, whatever word you want to use there, of the Lord. May He graciously do that in us. This is our great need. May He give it. That's what I'm going to pray for, for us right now. Let me pray. God, we are in need of Your gracious touch on us. To pierce us. To seep into us and, and to run all through us and to, to color and flavor every piece of us, every bit. But will you start doing that by, by your Spirit stirring us to pray and stirring us to take the Scriptures in prayer and read them? Would you remind us of the Gospel and the, the marvelous thing you have done for us? Would you alarm us at our own wickedness? that it may serve to magnify Your grace. I ask You to do that here in my brothers and sisters, in myself. May You make us a people, Lord, individually, as, as men and women and boys and girls, and then as a, as a church family, would You make us a people that everybody would clearly experience from us that people cares about others. Make us that kind of people, I pray. Lord, we need You. We need Your Spirit to rest on us and change us. So I ask You for grace to do this. You have built a people. You are perpetuating it. You are extending us in, in size and extending us down through the ages. You are doing that. But would you also make us a righteous people, pleasing to you and a blessing to others? I just ask you to do this. Christ be glorified in our midst. And we would experience him and know him and love him. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.